think it's a very important thing and uh, can relate to, to our ministry here. Let's have a word of prayer and then we will, we will get started. Father, we thank you now for today. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And Father, we just acknowledge that uh, nothing can be done apart from your spirit and that we are totally dependent on you to take that word and to uh, apply it to our lives in such a way that it will make a change it will conform us to the image of Christ, and that's what we want this morning. Father, we pray for our sister Melanie. We ask that you'd give the doctors wisdom uh, in dealing with her and find out what her situation really is and, and act appropriately. Thank you again now for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. We're going to talk this morning about the sufficiency of the atonement. And I know that um, I've heard, this was a couple of years ago, but I heard John MacArthur talking about the fact that he thought this was probably the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges that the churches are facing today, that people want to supplement the work of Christ. And if you think about it, it's, it's an insidious thing that can get into the church and um, really without hardly realizing it, we can practice that to some extent. Now, we don't anticipate putting an altar in here and praying to the saints and that kind of thing, but we have to be cautious because things creep into our life, into our spiritual life, um, to where we are dependent on on our own works in addition to what we'll, we'll say, oh yes, I believe that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ, but then we think that we have to cooperate with that, you know. And so we have to be cautious. And it's good to, to look at this from time to time and just to bring it to our mind so we can be conscious of it. So this morning we're going to be talking about the sufficiency of the atonement next week, the extent of the atonement, and that will finish us up on the redemption accomplished. And then we will go into the redemption applied. You'll have to take a probably about a, I don't know, maybe a six-week break in there because they've already got some things already scheduled into center school. And they gave me four weeks, and I've taken six, and I'm going to need ten. So uh, I don't know whose fault this is. I just knew that I could get through the introduction and the cause in, in uh, one week, and it took five. So anyway, okay. We're looking at redemption, accomplished, and applied. And we, every week we look back at the, the dictionary definition of redemption, an accomplished, a comprehensive term employed in theology with reference to the special intervention of God in the salvation of man. If God doesn't intervene in our lives, we will never be saved. You go to second to go to Romans three, and you find out that man will never seek God on their own. It's only when God comes to us and reveals himself to us that we will respond. So we're looking at the plan of redemption, and we, what we've accomplished so far is, and, and for the next, this week and next week, is, is kind of the, the background things. You know, these are things that happen 
before we were ever conscious that there was a God. I mean, these things, some of these things happened in eternity past, you know. And we were, you know, kind of fat, dumb, and happy, and we were just going along, and we didn't realize that we needed God. But then when we come to the, to the next part of the, uh, of the outline, the series, we're going to talk about redemption replied where, applied where God comes to us individually, and he reveals this work that he's done that we've been discussing for the last five weeks. And only as he reveals it can, it can it mean anything to us. So we said that the good pleasure of the Lord will be fulfilled in the life of a submissive child. Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. That's a tremendous blessing to me to realize that if I'm walking with the Lord, if I'm being open to what he wants me to do, he will accomplish what he wants. And sometimes it may look like we're off the track or, or he's, you know, we have sickness, we have problems that come up that we just believe, you know, this is, this is going to take us under. But God is working. God will take us along the way. So we said that God, when we, once we're saved, God puts us on a, on a path. He has a path lined out for each one of us. And that path and that plan uh, take, us, take us over when we're saved. And this is a part of our lives that we call sanctification. And God's working in our life. So his plan, his path will become our path if we are walking in obedience to him. And that path is the right path. According to uh, Psalm uh, 23.3, he, he says he leads us in path of righteousness. Dan has reminded us many, many times that that can be translated, he leads us in the right path. If we're following the Lord, he's leading us in the right path. That path may take us through cancer. It may take us through the loss of a child. It may take us through all kinds of things. But God uses these things to mold us into his, into his glory, into his uh, image of his son. So God's plan, as we follow him, becomes our plan, which is the right plan, and that plan accomplishes everything that God wants in our lives. Okay, and we have that as an assurance. Sorry, I'm real dry this morning. My, my throat, I hope my teaching is not, but we'll see so, re review, and we do a lot of review, and I don't want to bore you to death, but it's really important that we understand that we're talking about um, an atonement that is multifaceted, and we need to see how these things pull together. So, we look first off at the cause of the atonement. The cause of the atonement, uh, this God's intervention for our salvation the cause of it was God's love and justice. They were both the cause and the source of Christ's atonement. Our Father is once and for all completely satisfied with the atonement. Okay? You see the spelling of all there, A-L-L? That's the southern version. It's all. Sorry, that's a typo. So we've got um, the cause of the atonement was the love of God but also the justice of God. Okay. And then the necessity of atonement, to attain God's standard, God must become man. This is so important. 
to attain his standard. You know, he gave us the law, which is his standard, and none of us could attain to that. Okay? He didn't expect us to. He was just proving to us that we couldn't make it on our own. God's love and justice were both the cause and the source of Christ's atonement. Our Father is once and for all completely satisfied with atonement. God is propitiated. We'll look at that in a few minutes. He has nothing against us when we are his children. We talked about that. The nature of the atonement, uh, a number of different themes are used in the scripture to describe uh, what Christ has accomplished for us. And we've looked at these individually, or two or three at a, maybe at a time. The first part of it is the substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? The most fundamental description that one can ascribe to the atonement it is that it is a work of penal substitution. On the cross, suffered, Christ suffered the penalty, that's the penal, for our sins, for the sins of his people, there's a substitution. This is a core doctrine of our faith. It's spelled out in Isaiah 53. But if someone ever says that they don't believe that in the substitutionary sacrifice, they don't believe that one person could die for another, or that one should die for another, then that they're, they're attacking the very core of our, of our faith. If we don't have a substitutionary sacrifice, we don't have anything. Okay? We have nothing on our own. It's only what Christ has done, what Christ credits us with because of what he's done. Okay? We looked at substitutionary atonement, propitiation by receiving the full exercise of God's wrath against the sins of his people. Christ satisfied God's righteous anger against sin and thus turned away his wrath from us who had not been uh, wrath from us who had it not been for the substitute our substitute would have had to suffer ourselves God completely satisfied if you are a Christian one day you stand before God and you stand blameless and holy before him okay? he will see Christ's righteousness in us and on our own See, when we come before God, and every one of us will stand before God one day, if you're a Christian, it won't be for your for salvation, but it will be for, for your rewards. But if we're not, we stand before God one day. Everyone will. And if you're not a Christian, you're in trouble. Because the two thing, one of the two things is going to happen. Number one, your sins are going to be on Christ. You're going to have trusted in him, and he's going to have taken those sins on himself. The second possibility is if you have not trusted in Christ then your sins are still on your shoulder and you bear the full penalty of that. One or the other, there's only two ways. And when you get to that point, it's too late. You've already made the decision. If you've rejected the ruin of Christ, at that point you can't say, well God, give me a minute, I'm going to change camps. There's no way. Okay? That's heavy stuff, but that's you need to have that if you're not a believer. Then we talked about reconciliation. Man's sin not only brought guilt on the part of man, but aroused the wrath of God and affected, 
infected the enmity and alienation, infected in enmity and alienation between God and man. As propitiation is a removal of God's wrath against sinners, so reconciliation is a removal of God's enmity uh, against sinners. And that's the spelling too. I, put, I just put that in there to let you know I'm human, so you're going to make a mistake. So, propitiation is a removal of God's wrath against sinners. Reconciliation is a removal of God's enmity against sinners. Okay? Going fast, but we've covered this in past weeks. Then redemption. Redemption redeems us from the bondage of sin and the law through the payment of Christ's shed blood as a ransom. Okay? And we talked about the fact that this this was a the, the terminology used here it was used in um, uh, in in business where you bought and sold and you redeemed and that type of thing. Okay, so we were we were bought. Christ paid the ransom to God. Some will say that they paid the he ransom the ransom was paid to the devil, but don't believe that for a minute. Okay, God owed Satan nothing. He didn't. He never has. Never will. But God was the one who had been uh, uh, who had been wounded, had been offended by our sins, and therefore we were deemed to him. Then the conquest and paying the penalty for sin and freeing the people from sin and death, Jesus also accomplished a victory of conquest over Satan and the rulers, authorities, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus has, Jesus has effectively uh, released us from any control that Satan may have. We are not, we are not um, saved from. We will still, we'll still sin. Okay, we always will until we go to heaven. But Jesus has taken that control of Satan off of us. Okay. We no longer have to sin. We have been received. And then there's a review, and I realized I've kind of put review in, in three different places, but um, just basically in review, Christ's sacrifice removes the guilt of, and penalty of sin. Propitiation satisfies and removes the righteous wrath of God incurred by sin. Reconciliation removes the alienation, enmity uh, incited by sin. Redemption redeems from the bondage of sin and the law through the payment of Christ's blood as a ransom. And then finally, Jesus' conquest, Jesus accomplished a victory over Satan and the rulers, authorities, and spiritual forces of evil on our behalf. Okay. So, as Dan would say, that's introduction. So now what do we have to look at this morning? We have to look at the perfect sufficiency of, of the atonement. And like I say, this is so important because so many churches feel like they have to do something to supplement what, what Christ has already done. And if we're not careful, we'll get into that ourselves. Okay. Okay, many churches today have fallen prey to the belief that the believers must supplement God's work of redemption by their works and wisdom. Fallen man just can't believe that he isn't good enough to offer something to God to help with his salvation. 
Yeah. And that's that's true in all of us, you know, if you stop and realize it. Um, we just believe that, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm a sinner and I do this, but boy, there's some good things that I can do that God would accept. And that doesn't say that we can't do good works because we can, and God wants us to. But those good works come after our salvation. We work, we don't work unto salvation, but we work from salvation. Because we are saved, we have God gives us good works. Uh, Ephesians 2.10, I think it is. John MacArthur, in quoting one of C.S. Lewis's characters, states, the villainous through tape hated mere Christianity, just Christianity, pure Christianity, and desperately wanted to adorn it with worldly ideas, fads, trends, add-ons, and whatever else he could sell gullible Christians. Okay, that's what we are sometimes, gullible Christians. Why? Because he knew that these things can only water down and weaken the pure faith. Pure Christianity needs no embellishment. Okay? True Christianity needs no embellishment. Right around the corner from us is a Catholic church. And they have taken a building. Uh, used to be a, a funeral parlor, and then they made a, a youth center. But now they've got a, sister, a, a building set up for the perpetual adoration of Saint Teresa, I think it is. Okay, and so their idea is that they have people there all the time that are praying to to this this uh, sister who's been long gone. And sometimes the parking lot is packed with people to get in there. To, you know, that's nothing at all but idol worship. They've got her statue in there. I assume that that's what they do. They've got statues of Christ, the cross, you know, with them still going up the whole Catholic tradition. And that is nothing short of idol worship. You could put Buddha in there, you know, along with it. But people are so sure that they can do something to please God that that's, that's what they look to. Pure Christianity needs no embellishment. This morning we're going to look at 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 1, 3. Okay. It tells us his divine truth. Now, now, truth is not in the scripture, and I'm not trying to change the scripture, but I believe we can accurately say that as we read through the his divine truth or his divine power, or you could put truth in there, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Okay. His power, his truth that we have here gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. We don't need to go after these other things. In him we have wisdom, righteousness, Sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians one thirty. His grace is sufficient for every situation. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in him. He has perfected us forever. And we are complete in Christ. Now that's just a, a handful of verses. You can go through the scriptures and you can find many, many more. 
the word just confirms to us that he, what he has done is sufficient. We can count on that. In short, to possess Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to have every spiritual blessing. In him, we have all that we need to live in this life and prepare for the next. To add anything to what he said is finished is to call him a liar, to call Jesus Christ a liar. Because he, on the cross, he said it is finished. And he wasn't talking just about his crucifixion and all, but his, his victory over the, the evil one and, and his work. He says the only thing we need more of is a better understanding of the pure gospel and a commitment to obedience. Okay. Commitment to obedience. So we want to look at several features that establish the perfect sufficiency of Christ's atonement. I think there's three of them here we're going to look at. Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is an objective atonement. And what do we mean by that? Again, the natural delusion of the human heart that man himself must retain enough, has retained enough goodness to at least cooperate with the saving work of the Lord. That so that sinners can and must partake in the, with the Savior to affect their own salvation. We're talking about a mixture of grace and works. The atonement that he accomplished is an objective, is objective. It's a work accomplished independent of and apart from those who eventually will partake in its benefits. Okay. We had nothing to do with no cooperation of response to graces as to or energizes this ground of salvation. Okay. It was an objective work that he did for us from time eternal. Some scriptures, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. Verse we are all familiar with. Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of his Holy Spirit. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done. Then salvation is of the Lord and therefore it has been perfectly accomplished by him 2,000 years ago external to those things to those who reap the divine benefits. Okay, What he did 2,000 years ago accomplished all that the Father demanded all that he had for us in salvation. Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is an objective atonement. Okay? It had nothing to do with us. Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is established, because it is established by its finality. Right? It's, it is a single, finished, unrepeatable work. The book of Hebrews speaks in several places of the once of the once for all sacrifice uh, that he has secured for us. I want to read just a few verses out of Hebrews 10. And think in terms of the fact that it's a final unrepeatable sacrifice. It says, by this will, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ once for all. Every every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. When he sits down at the right hand of God, that's the indication that it's finished. It's done. The work is done. Sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He's done it all. you know, And we had no part in it. He didn't want us to have a part in it. He's done it. He's done it for us. Okay? It's final. He has done it all. Hebrews 9.12 says, Through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay? So Christ's atonement is sufficient because it's an objective atonement. He's done it. It was not left to us to have any part in it. And his atonement is sufficient because it is established by its finality. Okay? It's once for all. He's done this for us. Then third, Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is established by its efficacy. And this is something that we really need to understand. I had no idea of the truth before I came to Calvary. It was a shock to me in a way when I came and found it was true. By dying on the cross, Christ actually saved his people. He saved those who are his. It wasn't a case of, well, I'll, I'll repeat myself, so let me go through this. He, he came not to make salvation hypothetical, possible, or merely available, but to actually save his people from the sins. When he died on the cross, he actually saved his people. Okay. Uh, Matthew one twenty one says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sin. It's not a case that he came and died and kind of cracked the door so that we can we can work our way into it. I believe the Catholic Church teaches that you know there is grace, but that grace only gives you the opportunity to do the works that will allow you to be saved. That's not the way it is. He actually saved his people. He did not make men redeemable, but he redeemed them. He did not make a provisional atonement, but an actual one. Christ's death did not make sins forgivable. He accomplished forgiveness. His atonement was not hypothetical, potential, or provisional. It was an efficacious atonement. For that, we can, we can praise the Lord. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Before we became saved, we were alienated from God. We had no right to him. Only thing way God could look on us was with was with uh, displeasure and with judgment. 
but we were far off. We've been brought near now by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.22, and he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You know, that blows my mind when I think of, of who I am and was, um, the sin that I was involved in before I was saved, to be able to stand before a holy God and him to see us, see me as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There won't be anything that God will find to condemn me for when I before him if I'm in Christ. He sees us holy and blameless beyond, beyond reproach. Romans 8, therefore there is now no kind left of the word now. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of death, sin and death. And we don't have to wait until we get to heaven for him to announce us perfect. He sees us that way now. Spiritually, he sees us that way now. So Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is an objective atonement. Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is established by its finality. And Christ's atonement is sufficient because it is established by its efficacy. Okay? God's plan for atonement for man is sufficient. It was and is complete. The extent of the atonement had been set from before the, the foundation of the world. And next week we're going to talk about the extent of the, of the atonement. Who did Christ die for? How is it applied? Okay. Might make some people mad there, I don't know. The extent of his atonement has been set from before the foundation of the world. God-given faith would, allow, would not, excuse me, God-given faith would now allow his elect to personally receive and apply so great a salvation, putting them on God's path towards sanctification and eternal life. So we talked about 1 Peter 1 3. The God's path, the right path for redeemed man is available to those who are being sanctified. And in 1 Peter 1 3, it says, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. The question now is how does this power for everything we need become effective in our lives today? How do we tap into that promise that God has made to us? Well, I think the next verse tells us, 1 Peter 1.4, it says, For by these, by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. There's the key to us claiming the, the, what God has done for us. It's through the word. The, for by these he has granted unto us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them we may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. 
if you remember, we started out by saying, weeks ago, we started out by saying that God's plan for every saved person is Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. You know, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief, as the kids used to say, his desire for you, his plan for you, is to call, conform you to the image of Christ. So that's what he's saying here, that by partaking of God's promises, we become partakers of his divine nature. We fulfill that Romans 8.29. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So when we were saved, Christ comes to live within us through his Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Christ comes to live within us. Colossians 2.9 and 10 says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. You have been made complete. We have everything that we need to live a life that will please the Lord. We have everything that we need to live a godly life. But how do we practically appropriate those promises? How do we draw those promises from the scripture into our lives? Okay? We say here, once, once we're saved, the Holy Spirit ministers the truth of God delivered through his word is what we're to seek. It's the truth of God delivered through his word by his spirit to his children for their edification and his glory. And I love that progression. Friends, the word of God is the key to our life. If we're not saturating our lives with the word of God, we don't have a chance to know God's promises or to have the faith to draw on to know how to draw on them. Okay? And that's the key to, to, our, to our lives, to living the kind of lives that we need to live. If we're not in the Word, if the Word is not in us, there's no way in the world we're going to make it in this world as a Christian. Okay? It's got to be that way. Another way to say the same thing. And you've heard me use this before, and again, I love it. It's based on 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, transforms the child of God into the image of God for the glory of God. It always comes back to the Word. It always comes back to the Word. And we should love the Word of God to the the point we'd be willing to die for it, and that may be happening in this country for a while. It is such a comfort to to have the word living within us, to know the promises, and to live the promises. I'm not saying I do, but that's my my goal. That's what I want to do: to live the promises. 
So all of this brings us back to the what we said was God's priority when we began. Romans 8, 29. Yeah. That he's going to conform us to the image of his son. That should be our focus. And the only way it's going to happen is by being in the word of God, the spirit taking the word of God and transforming us. It doesn't happen any other way. You agree? I'll give you all some time to fellowship again. Uh, you ready for announcements? Every week I come up short, but that's okay. We'll just take it a little bit at a time and...